This is Channel 253. In this episode of Citizen Tacoma. People were like, why aren't you upset? Like, well, I've been upset. Like, how, you know, why aren't you doing anything? Well, I've been doing something for the past 20 plus years of my life. You know, so like, I don't, I just don't have this need jerk. Like, I can't afford for my own mental health to every time there's another tragedy to get all frantic about it. Because I've been seeing tragedy for, I'm almost 40. I've been seeing tragedy for, you know, 30 plus years. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of Citizen Tacoma. I'm your host, Eric Hanberg, and I am continuing my series with Tacoma City Council members talking about policing in our community. My guest today is Council Member uh, Keith Blocker, who actually uh, represents me. I'm a District 3 resident. He is uh, District 3, which is uh, Central Tacoma, and uh, I'm excited to get to this interview. Check it out. Council Member Keith Blocker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, for those who don't know, would you just introduce yourself and uh, your district? So, uh, Keith Blocker, um, I represent district, Council District 3. I'm currently serving as, as Deputy Mayor of the City of Tacoma. And I've been in uh, office almost six years now, first elected in 2015, and then re-elected in 2019. So, I'm in my second term. And District 3 is kind of like uh, Hilltop, Central Tacoma. Parts of South Tacoma. Parts yeah. of South Tacoma. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, great. I appreciate that. Um, I want to get into the, the topic of the day, which is uh, policing in Tacoma. Um, and maybe even more specifically, the transformation uh, that the city council is calling for. And even some of the recent incidents that we've had. There are a lot of issues surrounding police use of force. You know, they are charged with, uh, you know, carrying firearms and they can use, they're authorized to use deadly force, but obviously that can be abused. How do you think about those issues and those, those challenges? Uh, I mean, I think uh, I've, I've said this before, you know, here we are in the, the 21st century and in a lot of ways we're still using, you know, 18th century, uh, 18th century approach to, to policing. And um, I think now is, is, is a great time, you know, to, you know, to, to really reassess how we police our communities in a way that keeps residents and, and community members safe, as well as keep officers safe. And I think when we talk about, um, police accountability, it's its really about how we could do a better job at de-escalating situations, um, how we could really address bias and, and do it in a way that 
you know, that is is focused on recognizing that we all have bias and then when you're a, a, a institution or organization like like our, our like policing, um, bias can show up. And and when it shows up, how can we be more self-aware of it and recognize that there's a history of um, what I call anti-blackness that that continues to show up in a lot of ways when it comes to policing. And no one is saying that, you know, people identify as white never has a negative uh, interaction with law enforcement. Right. But but the, the data, at least the data that is collected, one of the problems is we don't collect enough data, but the data that is collected shows that there is disparities in how Black people and other people of color are engaged um, when it comes to law enforcement. And, and then we start looking at uh, you know, mental health issues, um, you look at uh, uh, how we enforce, you know, uh, drugs in our communities, who's being targeted, who's not being targeted. I mean, you know, we often hear, you know, numbers don't lie, but the numbers do show that there is um, a lot of disparities in how officers engage people of color versus people who identify as white. I was talking to one of your colleagues about whether they had been um, ever been in situations where they were feared for their own safety around police. Um, and I'm curious if, if you've had any experience where in your lifetime you have uh, felt that fear. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, um, spent the first 25 years of my life in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia has its own unique history around policing, particularly on the policing of black neighborhoods and black communities. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a whole, that's, that's, a, that's a long, long conversation, but uh, yeah, I mean, there was always this fear of, of law enforcement. So I, I remember like growing up, you know, I, I think every, uh, I'm generalizing, but almost every kid, you know, you ask them what do they want to be? They either want to be a, a, a cop or uh, a firefighter, right? It's like you hit, as soon as you hit like 9, 10, 11, 12, <laughs> your whole, uh, that whole concept just kind of shifts. So, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, I had, I've had our family members who are law enforcement, um, you know, cousins, and, and I've had friends who grew up and became police officers, but like, it is always this, this uh, a, a little bit of fear or anxiety that shows up when law enforcement is around, um, and and yeah, I mean, I think that's something that needs to be, you know, paid attention to. You know, for me as a as a black male growing up in an urban community, um, law enforcement more often was seen as as a as a threat and not so much as um, people that are here to protect and serve. And, and instead of, you know, for me, instead of people like pushing back on that or, or using their experience to, 
to minimize or dispute the experience of Black people, um, people should should listen and and try try to seek some understanding. Although it doesn't take much. I mean, like I said, you look at at, at history. I, I talked about Philadelphia. I mean, Philadelphia has a horrible um, horrible history with uh, how Black people were policed. You know, in the sixties, seventies, eighties. I mean, every decade, you know, and, and it just changed and it looked different, but um, it is always uh, uh, some some anxiety. You know, I'm older now, so like, you know, when I see officers, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not a teenage boy or in my 20s, so um, I'm fine. Um, I have had interesting experiences, even as a, <laughs> as a council member, you know, nothing crazy, but uh, wanna, do you want to share one of those? Yeah, I recall the time um, I was I was uh, going to my you know my apartment, <laughs> and I'm pushing my two boys in the stroller, and the officers were standing at the door, um, and they're like, you know, you live here, and I'm like, yeah, I live here. I, you know, how you know, officers, I live here. Is there anything I could assist you with? And they're like, yeah, we're trying to get into the building. So I'm like, oh, great. I'm, us in, let the officers in. There's like, you know, where's Royce elevator? Like, oh, well, the elevator is right over here. And I say, uh, you know, just, I just say hi. I just want to let you know I'm a blocker, deputy mayor of the city of Tacoma. And they all laughed at me. <laughs> what? <laughs> they laughed at me, and I was just like, hmm, okay. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't believe you. Is that what you thought uh, happened? That's what I thought, and I didn't go on and and continue to engage i just just smiled and they gave my kids a sticker (laughs) they got a sticker out of it i guess i was like oh that was interesting it was like not you know and i think like well i was you know i had a hoodie on you know i wasn't in my suit and tie but still it was like they they didn't even and i'm sure they was busy you know but the thing is if if I was white, would I have to think about all the reasons why they chuckled? They might have chuckled at you too. Who knows, right? But you wouldn't have been like, "Oh, I'm a white guy. That's why." <laughs> right. You know. So those so those are the things that when people talk about privilege, um, it's it's not having to think or second guess or question why um, something happened. Right. Um, you know, it, it's for me, I have to, you know, too often think about why a certain uh, engagement went a certain way. And I, you know, and I, I have to go through this kind of, you know, back and forth of, of you know, is because I'm black male or not, you know, and that takes a lot of mental energy, you know, that, <laughs> that yeah. other people just don't have to utilize. Yeah. When it comes to, I mean, you, you mentioned that, that story in Tacoma, and, and maybe that sets up this question. In theory, those officers work for some supervisor who works for another supervisor who works for the chief, who works for the city manager, who works for you. And, <laughs> yeah. and at every level, everyone should be accountable to the people above them. Right. And I guess my question to you is, is that working are the 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 patrol officers 
who are doing their job every day, are they accountable to their elected leaders and to the public? Uh, do you see them that that is that that is working right now? Um, I mean, it depends on what you how you define working, right? I mean, uh, you know, generally speaking, officers every day are, are are doing their jobs with the resources that they have. Um, you know, I recognize that while we're talking about you know defunding police. Um, and reallocating resources, we still have um, a reality of, you know, depending on how you look at the most appropriate way to police communities. If you look at a per capita rate, you know, long, you know, officer to population ratio, then city of Tacoma is is short. Um, if you look at, uh, you know how many patrol officers are on the street at a certain time. And, you know, when someone breaks into your car or, you know, there's a domestic violence situation and, and officers don't have the ability to show up within five minutes, then, then in theory, we're short, right? And that, and that means something needs to be done differently. So, you know, we as elected officials have to make the tough decisions about how how we deal with the current reality and recognizing that we don't live in a, a crimeless society. Um, but at the same time, you know, I I I believe that you know a lot of the crimes that we're seeing are crimes of desperation um, that are rooted in poverty. Um, people are making um, decisions that they feel as though uh, will improve the quality of their life from a temporary standpoint. So, you know, when we start thinking about policing, how we're policing communities, you know, there's a lot of, we talked about just from patrol to, to the mayor and council, well, you got police unions that that have a lot of say in um, how officers engage the public. Um, then there's state law that has a lot of say in um, how officers should engage the public. And then we have the city charter, obviously, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, and there's a lot of different policies that that impact how law enforcement officers engage community. So, I mean, I don't know, in my opinion, the system needs to change, um, but when you say, is it working? You know, to some it is and to others. I mean, I, I would argue that on, on every level, you know, the, you find a patrol officer, hey, this ain't working to that, to the, to, that patrol officers, supervisors, like this is not working. Uh, all the way up the chain of command, I bet you somebody's going to say this is not working, and and, it, and we'll all say it's not working for different reasons. Um, so, how do we fix that? I think we look at uh, really just look at how we, what's the best approach to policing our communities? Do we need um, law enforcement officers? with 
with firearms to engage people who are struggling with mental illness? Um, do we need law enforcement officers or, you know, we, you know, the state is defining them as peace officers now, um, peace officers to deal with domestic violence situations. So I don't know, I think like with, with how complex it is and all the different levels of, you know, chain of command or policies and procedures, um, you know, I would argue that for black and brown communities is not working. Uh, and then, and you look at, you know, white communities, I, I'm sure there's plenty of, of people identify as white that would say it's not working. So, um, and then, but for some people it absolutely is working, right? And that's, and that's where the challenges, challenges come. Um, and as policymakers, at least on you know city council level, uh, the the change is I mean it's almost surgical. You know, it's not. I try to tell people that it's not. You know, you you're a policymaker too, and you're in, in other roles, right? It's like you know, it's not just tear it down and rip it apart. It's like really finding the the devil in the details to see where you can make tweaks. And that's the way we've designed our government. You know, it was designed in a way that you can't just swoop in and make, you know, changes overnight. And then when you do make changes is what are the unattended consequences for those actions. So none of that was like a long winded. <laughs> no, it's important. I, I we, We've got the time. So I appreciate yeah. that. Um, you say that it, that, that it needs to be changed. There was a, a document passed last summer calling on a transformation in policing. Um, what does what does that mean to you? And you know, what would you like to see happen? Well, so the, what we did to say it's a coma, where where the transformation is not just about policing, because again, we recognize that excuse me, um, when it comes to racial inequities and racial disparities, I mean, it's across the board. Um, so it's not just policing. And, and in a lot of ways, policing um, is one of the most visible things and, and, and most talked about concerns. Um, but in reality, you know, when I think about the disparities that Black people face, um, it doesn't necessarily start with policing, right? It starts with, you know, housing. It starts with healthcare. It starts with the lack of um, economic resources that are put into uh, Black communities or have, have been taken away from or, you know, um, or not allowed to be in black communities when we think about, you know, redlining and and housing injustice. How do we get to poor and low income communities? Um, oftentimes, that's not really paid attention to. So when we see, you know, neighborhoods that are lacking in resources, um, you could go way back to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s and see that those neighborhoods were were redlined 
and not um, invested in and solely because black people lived in those in those areas. I mean, even Tacoma has maps where um, it's like a uh, you go to like to the north end and you'll see a, a, a square within all the green, a red square, and that's where the black family lived, right? So it was so like racial injustice didn't just happen. Like these are things that were implemented um, and started with government and then the private sector took on the same approach. Yeah. So um, another thing that is is often, you know, overlooked is when we talk about policing and at the same time, you know, for the past decade or so, even longer, we talked about the school to prison pipeline. And I think we really need to interrogate that more. Um, you know, we talk about the failures of black communities. Um, our education systems have have failed, you know, and when we talk about how we get out of poverty, you know, people often say education is key, but our education systems have been impacted by redlining. Um, our education systems are uh, are funded through property taxes, and, and it's the the neighborhoods that were redlined have less property taxes, but they have less resources. So, um, when we go through, like I said, those crimes or acts of desperation, uh, law enforcement is often at the tail end of that, and we ask officers to like. You know, we want them to play basketball and, you know, engage community and, you know, you know, do all these things, be teachers, be therapists, you know, and I, I recognize that the stress that the officers um, deal with at the same time, you know, that's they they've chosen a job that that in a lot of ways they got to bear their burden, you know. And and that doesn't having a tough job doesn't negate um, being responsible or uh, you know making better decisions even even when things are you know look scary or look like harm might come your way. But again, going back to like thinking about bias and how how uh, we all have it. But when you have institutional power um, and a system to back you, you know that responsibility is, in my opinion, is even greater um, in, the, in the sense of preserving life or um, making sure that community, all community members feel safer. But again, like it's not, you know, going back to the transformation. You know, our call is is really to look at all the different agencies that the city interacts with and look at what we can do as city government to improve the quality of life and close disparities um, in our right now, because policing is kind of at the forefront of everybody's mind. That's, that's the first thing we're, we're tackling. But we I mean, were talking about generations and decades on decades of of issues and and now there seems to be kind of a heightened awareness of it 
Um, you know, these problems won't be solved overnight, but it's, it's good that, that, you know, as a city, we're, we're recognizing that we need to be more thoughtful in our approach to making sure that all communities feel safer. Yeah. I think, I think the reason, you know, with the policing being at the forefront is, you know, we had, we're coming up on almost the one year anniversary of uh, the homicide of Manny Ellis. That is still sitting on the attorney general's desk by the time that the January incident happens. Um, so it, fe- it, it feels to me like there's a, a crisis happening here, but the answers to get out of it are all very slow. I mean, it's been a crisis. Like, that's the thing. Like, um, for me, I, I, like I'm living in a constant sense of urgency. So, you know, I, you know, people, you know, often want, you know, I, I'll personalize it. People were like, why aren't you upset? Like, well, I've been upset. Like, how, you know, why aren't you doing anything? Well, I've been doing something for the past 20 plus years of my life. You know, so like, I don't, I just don't have this need your, like, I can't afford for my own mental health to every time there's another tragedy to get all frantic about it. Because I've been seeing tragedy for, I'm almost 40. I've been seeing tragedy for, you know, 30 plus years. You know, I, I think about like, you know, being nine, 10 years old and watching movies like Boys in the Hood, you know, and and growing up in the, you know, the 80s and 90s. And it was this, it was kind of this narrative of like, young black men don't make it till 25, you know? Um, and I had to go through my teenage years with that in the back of my mind of how do I survive, you know, these main streets? How do I navigate these streets with law enforcement and all these different threats, right? So, like, <laughs> you know, I've seen dead bodies in the street. I've seen um, people get harmed in neighborhoods. And I, I just can't afford to, to like, have this this reaction because I've had that reaction already. So for me, it's just about um, how do I stay, keep my own mental health in order and continue to do the work because this is not new work, right? This was, you know, you know, Dr. King, Malcolm X, I mean, you name it, Black Panther Party. Uh, people have been dying doing this work and some, some, Civil rights leaders made it to 100 and, and some made it to 21, right? So it's like, how do we do this work and, and sustain our own mental health? Because this is not new work. And for me, it's not, it's been urgent. Like the fire has been burning. So I'm not going to, you know, yell and scream every time I see, uh, you know, another fire to put out because there's it's, it's fire everywhere. And, and I know for some people that's that's their approach to it. It's just not my approach because it's 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 been a tragedy. Um, I, I appreciate that reminder <laughs> that, that this is a very long problem. And I I might have 
clued into it in a way that I hadn't before after Ferguson, especially for me is where I realized, you know, I'm in local government and local government's trying to help its citizens. And here's a government that is literally preying on its own um, constituents. And, and, and that started for me, you know, a, a lot of personal reflections and journeys, and that's only what, six, seven years now. So I, I appreciate um, what you're saying when you, when you say that. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling, and you can rest easy knowing you're gonna get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you wanna learn more, visit movetacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. What are some steps that we could do to move forward? There's there's a 21st century police report that's on your, you know, been presented to you, a preliminary yeah. police report. Yeah. Is that a start? Are there is that enough? How do you think about that? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's another step in the right direction. You know, um, it's, I think we were given like 65 preliminary recommendations in a full report should be coming to us pretty soon um you know but again it's 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 what can we do as a city that doesn't um that tests in, in alignment with state law and in alignment with police union contracts right and and right now we're we're going to be negotiating the new contract um and its rules of engagement around how we negotiate those contracts so i just i try to tell people you know we got to be you know while we while we want to push for change there are legal parameters that we have to follow and and it's really about assessing risk you know, um, and some of us, you know, are more willing to take risk than others. And and that's what you get when you put, uh, you know, different people who have different interests, you know, who represent different constituents. I mean, that's, that's called democracy, right? <laughs> and then, and, you know, that's just the reality that we live in. So, um, I mean, those were, I'm sure the, the recommendations look good, but if, if state law says one thing and we're saying another thing, 
And then union contracts say another thing, like we have to navigate all those different policies and procedures, um, you know, because these these are the rules that were, were created for before. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about that, that union contract. Um, it feels like my, my, my just rough assessment of it is, is that over decades, that contract accrued more and more power that the elected officials, you know, gave to the, to, to that union. And now we're asking our elected officials to try to get some of it back. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that is fairly accurate. Um, you know, some, some might argue that the contracts are just kind of rubber stamped, um, you know, and, and, you know, and the main things that probably have been negotiated is like, you know, salary and benefits. And, you know, those are the, those are the hot things, you know, and now we're looking at other things that can potentially, at least from law enforcement's perspective, roll back their protections. And when you start, you know, or at least what they think protects them, right? And we start um, removing those kind of things, you know, now, now, now you have a different set of circumstances. And then, you know, some of the arguments are, you know, well, you know, we do these things and, you know, people won't want to be officers anymore. And, you know, I, I have my own opinion about that. I, I think, you know, maybe that's that's the the breaking point where we start attracting different kinds of officers. Um, and at the same time, you know, I'm not really big on this, this bad apple, you know, idea of officers. I, I really think it's bad policies that, that create a culture um, that puts officers in bad situations. And if we, if we really took the time to think about how we could better police um, for the safety of community members and officers, um, then maybe we wouldn't have so many situations where people are, you know, upset and you know wanting to take to the streets. So, so that's the, that's one of the biggest challenges, and. and and then the other side is, you know, thinking about the defund conversation. Um, what 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 should it cost to to have everybody feel safe, right? What you know should that should that mean? We need to give officers more money, right? If if they have to take different approaches, and you know, um, you know. If, pay officers more, you know, I mean, this is a lot of, like, it's really not a simple, you know, clear cut conversation because for me, if, 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 if we could get the disparity of, uh, of use of force down, if we could preserve life, um, if we could reduce how many black and brown people are unnecessarily harmed by law enforcement, 
I'm willing to pay a lot for that, you know? So, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's just an interesting conversation and, and we're asking, um, we're asking government to do better and we want them to do better with less. And that's, that's, a, that's a real tension. You know, I've even heard people say, well, why are you doing body cameras? That's giving officers more. Well, because some people believe that body cameras can keep people safer, right? And Do you believe that? I, I mean, I think it helps. Um, I think it creates more accountability that currently exists. Um, and, and that, that cost, that cost that cost a lot of money to do. So, um, am, am I willing to pay more out, out of my personal tax dollars, you know, to have officers, you know, take more training, you know, to, to take a better approach of de-escalating. And on the flip side, it has to be, you know, more accountability. I, I believe that behavior changes when there are consequences or incentives. And, and I, I really don't see either of those um, being put forth in law enforcement in general. And not just talking about Tacoma, just talking about police culture in general. What, um, what should be the consequence for recklessly and irresponsibly endangering someone's life as if you're an officer? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think loss of job is, is, is first, um, you know, cause it, it gets complicated. It's, it's, I really can't say that because I don't know each situation. I don't know what, what people are going through, um, you know, when they make certain decisions. But what I can say is if, if it was clearly, you know, just an egregious act or there was something where an officer has a history of continued bad behavior, um, I think that needs to be addressed, right? And like, you know, this one act, you know, people make mistakes and, I, you know, it's just hard for me to say, but what I, what I am clear on, repeated offenses, <laughs> Um, at some point, benefit of the doubt got to get thrown out the window, right? And and officers get a lot of benefit of the doubt, and um, and there may be cases where they should get the benefit of the doubt, but when we see, um, I'll give you an example in Tacoma. There have like there has been officers who have been fired, and you're like, well, well, damn, when does that happen, right? Because we don't hear about it, we don't know when officers get fired. You know why? Because that that docket keeps <laughs> it's it's almost a secret, right? It's not a public announced thing. And um, state law has this thing called you know interest arbitration, where you know officers could get their jobs back. So it makes me question like, well, what what the hell? Because we see officers, you know not held accountable quite often, at least in public, you know, yeah. and when an officer is held accountable, they're able to get their job back. 
you know, that's something I think needs to be changed and addressed. And and there's other cases, there's cases where officers get their job back in the, the place they were fired from. And then there's times where officers go in other jurisdictions and and work for another agency. I mean, that to me, that's a, that's a clear red flag of there's a problem in the system. So those are the things that I think, you know, out, are outside of the gray area. And, and those are the things that I think the public needs to be more informed about. And, and a lot of that is, is not even on a local level. That's, that's like state level. And that's where, that's where the power of unions come into play. Um, so what do you mean by that? Uh, those are, you know, when the officer is, is let go, they could challenge that, you know, and that's not just officers, right? That's just the power of that's with teachers, (laughs) you know, that's, that's your janitor, you know, that, that works, you know, as a union backing them, you know, so it's like, you know, unions were designed for good, but everything that was designed for good isn't always good. And and it's not always, you know, good for every situation. And when we see that it's not working, um, I just think it's important to for for everybody to recognize like, okay, this this is not why this was designed to to, um, you know, yeah. to protect people that clearly have, clearly are out of line or clearly have done something that egregious. Um, I, I don't know what the, the comparison would be to the teachers union, but it feels like um, if a teacher, to use this terminology I used before, recklessly and irresponsibly endangered a student's life, the that would fall outside of what the union would be able to negotiate consequences for. Like, I understand that a union can negotiate, you know, capricious, uh, prevent capricious firing. Like there's a lot of good they can do to help. Mm -hmm. Um, But it feels like there are all these extra things baked in to the police union that don't exist with our other unions. I I, I can't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, you know, um, but what I do know is when you start, uh, talking about making those changes in police union contracts, other unions step in and say, wait a minute. So, Tell me more about that, because that's news to me. What does that mean? Um, well, people are concerned about being fired for the wrong reason, right? Um, sure. And we start peeling, peeling away at, at, you know, for example, I, I remember pointing out concerns about disciplinary actions um, in, in the police union contract. And, and then it was brought to my attention that well, these are like general, <laughs> general things that are in union contracts. Okay. You know? to protect, you know, uh, from someone, a supervisor say, hey, I don't, you know, you didn't wear the right boots today. And, you know, 
So certain things could be taken out your docket or, you know, certain acts could be in your docket for a year. And then certain things could stay in your, your docket for three years and certain things could stay in your docket for five years. And then if you don't do the same bad thing, then it's, it's out your docket. Got like it. that's not, that's not just a police union thing, right? Sure. That's, so when you start poking at those kind of things, um, other, other unions start raising concerns. Got it. So, since we're talking about the police union, two days ago, they published a Facebook post, and this was possibly done in some other ways as well, that talked about a failure of city leadership to come a community deserves better. Um, I mean, it, I printed it out at six pages long. I was going to start highlighting parts of it, but, you know, the anti-cop culture cultivated by the mayor and city leadership has poisoned our Tacoma Police Department. Um, I I don't hear when I talk to you, I don't hear anti-cop. You're not saying defund the police. You're not saying, um, you know, I, I heard a lot of things that, that I think um, would make it pretty clear that you're not anti-cop. How do you think about these kinds of, I mean, it's, it's a six page long <laughs> attack on the council. How do, how do you, how do you take that? Know. How do you feel about it? What do you want to say? I, I mean, I think it's what like, I'm, I'm not anti-cop. I'm not pro-cop. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I want to see stuff done the right way. Like, it's like, and it's just funny. Like you, you know, it's, it's, you gotta be anti, you gotta be pro. And I'm like, no, I just, Officers need to do a good job, right? If the public is saying that, you know, you're not doing your job the way we think, like, don't put that on the city council. Um, and then, like, don't, you know, find there's community unrest, um, there's national issues. But we have something right here in Tacoma that has happened where people saw with their naked eye and they have an opinion about it. and. And for, you know, for the council and government to be, to be blamed for how people perceive police officers, I think it's just another, um, another example of the lack of wanting to be accountable. You know, like when, when somebody critiques me for being a, a crappy council member, I don't say, well, man, those officers need to do their job better, right? I'll say those firefighters need to get their act together. Like, you know, I, I take it with a grain of salt and I try to figure out what I can do um, better, right? And that's, that's being accountable. Um, leadership, is not about, in my opinion, placing blame. Um, I'm not blaming officers for anything. I'm saying, hey, you know, you could do your job better, period. And and I could say that about anybody, right? I could say the, the grocery store clerk could do their job better or 
you know, so like asking people to be better or asking an agency that historically has had a tremendous amount of power um, that impacts the everyday life of the people they say you want to serve and protect is not, uh, you know, minimizing, you know, what's on their plate. It's not, you know, saying that they're horrible people. Uh, what I'm saying is there's some bad policies all around. And, you know, do I think every officer is just running around thinking about how they can harm Black people? Of course not. Do I think um, officers have bias that, that show up when they engage, you know, communities of color? Hell yeah, you know? And, and history has shown that that's the case. And, and to, to negate history and to negate things that people see or experience and not feel like, hey, well, you know, what can we do better? Like, that's what the conversation should be about. Okay, you know, people feel this way about us. What could we do better? I mean, I remember when we were doing the police chief interviews, uh, one, one candidate stood out. He said, you know, officers need to say, I think it said these six words, we are part of the problem. Period. And and I can look you in the face and say, you know what? I'm part of the problem too. Right. And if you if anybody in this community uh thinks that they're not part of, of a problem, then they need to reassess, right? Because we all can do better and we're all a part of this system that impacts the lives of others. So, you know, I I, I think about um, the comments I made on our special council meeting. And of five years, almost six years, I think we've had two. That was the second special council meeting um, we've ever had. And the other one was when the Tiki, the Tiki apartment evictions. So the only, the point I was trying to make is, right, we're talking about street racing. Okay, that's bad. But we had a special council meeting. And it wasn't to talk about street racing. Um, it was to talk about an officer hit people, right? And and I got a I got a finger wagging <laughs> and a letter for that. And I, from and from who? Oh, you didn't see the letter. The National Police Union um, wrote a letter. Said my comments were divisive presumptive and I'm like I, I, I said what I saw I didn't I, I never said you know what I thought the officer's intent was all I said was we're talking about street racing when an officer hit people and that's the problem that we should be talking about and we could talk about street racing but you know maybe that's for another council meeting because because we've been talking about how officers interact and engage people for, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, how many decades, right? right? Years, decades. Um, I don't recall us ever having a street racing conversation. 
And I'm pretty sure street racing has been going on since since cars were invented, right? So it's this constant, let's talk about something else, you know, or, you know, this isn't the problem, you know, uh, you know, I think about George Floyd. Well, if he didn't have a counterfeit $20 bill or if he didn't have a criminal record, then he wouldn't have died. And it's like, like, why are we talking about those things? You know, that, that has nothing to do with, you know, why this person, you know, life was taken or Eric Gardner, you know, selling loose cigarettes or Tamir Rice, or if he didn't have a toy gun. You know, it's like, why Why do we refuse, you know, many of us in society refuse to talk about the real problem at hand, you know? And I think about all the times I ran around with a toy gun as a kid, and like, it's terrifying to think that a child could be shot for playing with a toy gun, you know? Um, and that, And that's a reality, but the reality is like what we really should be talking about is how law enforcement could do a better job. And, and you know what, you could do a good job. You could be great at your job and you still could do a better job, you know? Right. And, and I think about, uh, Mayor Strickland said like, you know, 95% or 99% of officers are great. And she got a nasty letter, you know, from the union saying, what do you mean only 99% of us are great? I mean, somebody said 95% or 90% or 70% of elected officials are great. I'd be like, man, that's, <laughs> we're doing all right over here. You know, so it's like this, this idea that you can't even critique officers um, is frustrating. You know, you got the most powerful job. You should be okay with a little critique from time to time. So, Yeah. I want to wrap up and just give you an opportunity. Is there anything you would like to say that you haven't said about, um, I'm going to name three incidents in Tacoma, the the homicide of Manny Ellis, um, the street, uh, the, 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 officer who drove into the crowd at that street racing event in uh, January or the arrest of the two Black Lives Matter organizers shortly thereafter? I mean, I guess I'll start with the rest of the Black Lives Matter organizers. Um, That that should have never happened. I mean, I don't know, like I wasn't there. So again, I, you know, can't, can't make a full judgment. But what I can say is officers have discretion um, and, and what I do know, you know, I know jails are turning people away <laughs> for, 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 you know, petty crimes and maybe even more. Because of just, COVID. Because of COVID. And the decision was made <laughs> that these two people need to be behind bars tonight. Right. And again, like that just kills trust. Um, it makes people question, you know, government, law enforcement, all that, right? But 
the, the decision was made that the, those two people needed to be behind bars that night. On top of, you know, no street racer was arrested. But, you know. No officer they, was arrested. Well, they don't even go there, right? No street racer, no officer, but, you know, discretion was made and those people were put beyond bars. Um, you know, the Manny Ellis situation, you know, just going off of, you know, what, what many people saw on camera, you know, all I can say is I, I think that situation could have been handled differently, you know, um, and we could say that about anything, right? But whatever happened led to led to a loss of life. And and it appears to me that that loss of life wasn't necessary. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, it's, it's just it's another crisis. And you know, it, it, it's just another example of why we need to really look at how we police our communities and and how we do it in a way that um, you know ensures that that people are safe and safer outcomes and I think that could be done and and officers could stay safe as well you know um, as for the, the the street racing car you know again I don't know what was going through that officers mine you know and i try not to make snap judgments but again you know appears to me that that could have been handled differently without people being ran over you know and 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 the crazy thing is everything i just said to somebody is controversial and i'm being extremely thoughtful (laughs) about what i'm saying you know um but yeah. I, I might get another letter written. <laughs> let, let me know if you do. I mean, someone's listening to the podcast. I, I appreciate your time, Council Member Blocker. What, uh, what's a good way to reach you if uh, citizens want to reach out after listening to this? Um, I mean, I'm on Facebook. I got a Council Member Key Blocker page. I'm on social media. Uh, email, my city email is keith.blocker at cityoftacoma.org. Okay. Thank you again for uh, sharing your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Citizen Tacoma is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.